On today's show, we're talking about opening pathways to economic opportunity for people with criminal records. And we're joined by Timothy McNutt, who is director of the Criminal Justice and Employment Initiative at Cornell's ILR School. Tim, welcome to the studio today. Good to be with you. Yeah, you bet. So, Tim, you come to this work after years in the legal profession. You were assistant district attorney in Brooklyn, New York, taking on criminal investigations. You were lead counsel at the Nassau County DA's office. You represented clients in the St. Louis City Drug Court, all the while doing loads of nonprofit and advocacy law work. How did those experiences take us where we are today, working to correct problems in employment for formerly incarcerated people? Yeah, sort of an unlikely path, but I think what I learned working in the criminal legal system, one, it's an important job. It was a fantastic experience, but I really wanted to do something to address sort of the underlying causes that lead to involvement in the criminal legal system. Uh, at times became disenchanted with the outcomes we were producing in the criminal legal system. The Cornell ILR School provided me a great opportunity to do just that, do the kind of work that I wanted to do with knowledge of the criminal legal system, with legal training, to try and address barriers to work for people with criminal records, uh, because we know access to work is one of the most important factors in recidivism, but also benefits employers, families, increases the taxpayer base, promotes public safety. So a whole host of great reasons to be in this space now. Let's talk about the magnitude of the problem. So we have a shared understanding of the severity and scope of this. There are 2.1 million people incarcerated in the U.S., 4.4 million people on parole or probation supervision. About 600,000 people reenter society each year, which is about 10,000 people every week. Staggering numbers. There are 70 to 100 million Americans with criminal records. That's close to one third of us. You describe this as a uniquely American problem. Yeah, I've cited these statistics over and over, and every time they're as jarring as we're, we're hearing uh, that you say, say now. The real challenge, too, is there's a disparate impact on communities of color. What it does, I think, is it makes it very personal. There's hardly people that, that aren't affected by this in some way, whether it's at their workplace, whether it's a friend, a family member involved in, in the criminal legal system. And I think really focusing on what can we do to try to address this particularly in the workplace, that's a good solution for those that are reentering society, but also looking at solutions for employers, people looking for new talent. So really trying to take what is a sadly kind of unique American problem and looking at ways we can try to address it. And that's sort of the reason we formed the Criminal Justice and Employment Initiative. A couple additional staggering statistics you had mentioned in our conversation that formerly incarcerated are five times more likely to be unemployed. In addition to that, having a criminal record reduces callbacks by employers. Yeah, so if you have a criminal record, chances are you're 50% less likely to get a callback at a job. And these are the kinds of impact on employment. They're often called collateral consequences to having a criminal record, which is often viewed, uh, you know, we talked about mass incarceration rates, but we're now kind of moving into a mass supervision where probation and parole are playing a larger role, equally challenging for barriers when somebody's trying to move forward with their life. But again, like looking at ways we can address this problem, open up access to economic opportunity, which can have a ripple effect in terms of access to benefits, healthcare, housing, all these issues. In preparing for the show, I've noticed in my question prep, I'm thinking a lot about terminology. I'm drawing from copy online, and some people tend to refer this vast population of people as those who've been involved in the criminal legal system or formerly incarcerated people. And here we are using language that effectively reduces someone to what may is likely to be their worst act. So how do we talk about this? Do we say justice impacted? You work in this space, so set me straight. Words are really important here. Yeah, and it really starts with the language. I cannot claim to be infallible in this area. 
I remember as a prosecutor, words like convict, felon, perp, defendant, inmate, you know, these sorts of words, not just dehumanizing, but start to shape a narrative that conflates a criminal record with character. And while I can understand, I think there's some necessity in law enforcement, or at least it's perceived that way, in order to effectively do a job, channel in on what the work is being done. The ripple effect when you get into the employment context is really devastating. When you start to really, it shapes, I think, how we approach an assessment of a candidate, moves away from a skills-based assessment, an individualized assessment, which we'll talk about later, to something that's very personal, that, that brings bias, discrimination. So when we talk about this issue, I think it's important to think about it in frame of person-centered language. So things like justice-impacted individual, justice-involved, in, someone with a criminal record, things that don't define who that individual is as a person and separates the act from who they are and particularly who they are as a worker. Very useful. So there are two main sets of stakeholders that you aim to reach with your work at the Criminal Justice and Employment Initiative at Cornell. Tell us how you work with both job seekers and people on the employment side as well. So with job seekers, we do training in correctional facilities. We train people on probation and parole. This kind of work can look like, first, just how do you get a copy of a criminal record? How do you review that record for errors? And there are many errors in some of these records. Look for eligibility for sealing and expungement, which can have a profound impact on somebody's trajectory when they're reentering. Uh, but also know the legal landscape. When we surveyed the reentry field and thinking about how we could play a role, lots of great resources for cover letter, resume writing, job interview skills, even support services for getting uh, suits to wear to job interviews, but not heavy on what I'll call hard skills, right? Navigating the hiring process, knowing laws like ban the box, correction law 23A here in New York, which we'll talk about in a minute, Fair Credit Reporting Act. So that's a focus on kind of empowerment navigating the space for justice impacted. On the employer side, we have to find ways to help employers access this new talent pool, improve recruiting, but also deal with the challenge of evaluating a candidate with a criminal record. What are the mechanisms that HR departments use? How can we operationalize those? How can we gear them more towards an individualized assessment, looking specifically at the skills for the job? And I'll just mention two other stakeholders that we work with, Chris, in addition to employers and justice-impacted individuals, community partners are really important to our work. There's lots of workforce development agencies, nonprofits doing the work in the field, supporting candidates in their hiring process. We want to be a resource for them to train on best practices, to train on the legal landscape of that work. But in the sort of macro context, we need to be thought leaders. As an educational institution, we need to start defining policies both in the HR workspace, but also politically. So we do that work through lobbying, provide information on some criminal justice reform measures that can improve employment. So legislators and policymakers become a critical uh, stakeholder group for our work too. So let's go, let's focus in on the employee side. So what kind of obstacles are there for people finding work who've been involved in the criminal legal system? We just talked about criminal records, but it's just not about having a criminal record, right? I mean, a thousand issues spin off from this. There are hundreds of occupations and business licenses, for instance that are completely off limits. What's the deal there? To get a scope of that, the American Bar Association a number of years ago actually created a database to start logging these barriers. And I think the count at one point was up to 46,000 barriers for somebody with a criminal record. Related these are job to descriptions or particular types of jobs that are classified in you a know, certain way? It can be, it can get into the occupational licensing area. Oh, right. So if there's a job and it requires an occupational license, many do. 
having a criminal record can be a barrier. And in some states, it can be a complete bar if you have a felony conviction. No matter that it has no bearing or relationships to the job duty, meaning the criminal conviction has no bearing. And those are the kind of laws we're trying to look at more closely, present some more narrowly tailored skills related to conviction type of assessments. But that's the scope. And, and then, you know, we're just talking about employment. But again, these consequences, collateral consequences of a criminal record can touch the housing sector, healthcare benefits. And we have a labor shortage on top of it all, or at least what we are calling a labor shortage. You had something else that you yeah, were proposing. I, I, yeah, I think there is a labor shortage, but I think maybe what we ought to look at more is, is sort of this access to work issue. I think there's millions of talented workers and not just justice impacted, workers with disabilities, veterans, people who have been out of the workforce that maybe were denying opportunity or maybe they're self-selecting out of the workforce. And a lot of that revolves around some of the laws that we have on the books kind of some discriminatory practices, bias, things that we're trying to, to help address to open up the pathways, which ultimately hopefully address the labor shortage. 90% or roughly 90% of employers run background checks. What's the problem there? This is a multi-billion dollar industry. There's over 4,000 criminal background screening companies that do this work for profit. Their sole work is essentially disseminating the criminal histories of probably millions of workers to companies. We understand why that's part of the practice of hiring. However, the role it plays can kind of, say, pervert the hiring process, but really magnify something and create what we'll call like a risk-based assessment, a risk-based posture, where as soon as an employer sees that criminal history, and since 90% run a background check, chances are if you've been involved in the criminal legal system, it's going to come up in the employment context. If you're unacclimated to the criminal legal system or it's new, or perhaps you're outsourcing it to a third party, how that information is used can be extremely damaging. It can also really outsize one act and, you know, just to pull back, I mean, 90% uh, or something, you know, ridiculous related to involvement in the criminal legal system is nonviolent offenses. Okay. So we're not yeah. often talking about what people often go to, which is like the, the most heinous crimes, but low level offenses become magnified in this process. Employers get really worried about negligent hiring lawsuits, incidents at the workplace, high turnover, things that our research and data show aren't actually reflected in the workforce population with criminal records. In fact, when you compare, in many instances, workers with criminal records to workers without, you'll find that they stay on the job longer, more loyal, less incidents at the workplace. And in many cases, there's tax credits and insurance protections for employers. But all to get back to your question, basically, this criminal record really highlights somebody's involvement in the criminal legal system in the hiring process, which may divert us from doing a skills-based individualized assessment. And criminal records, you told me, were riddled with errors. That's another challenge. So anytime you're documenting a very complex system like the criminal legal system, you're going to have challenges. And errors are part of that. There's been studies done with FBI rap sheets that one out of two have some kind of an error. In New York, one out of three have contains an error. So that just compounds a problem already taking complicated information, embedding it in the hiring process. And then when you add on the fact that many of these have errors, it just really paints a, a grim picture for a worker who's trying to navigate this. And frankly, an HR professional who is looking for new talent, but faces barriers. Let's talk about the traditional hiring process itself. We're dealing with traditional resumes, right? Cover letters, HR management software. Are there practices to put non-traditional candidates for jobs at a disadvantage? How does that system, how is it kind of rigged? 
I, I, I think so. I think, you know, we still rely on decades old hiring heuristics and it may not fit the purpose that we need to evaluate candidates. Cover letters, resumes don't always quantify all the evidence-based predictors of job success we'd like to see. And this kind of model really does negatively impact, particularly somebody with a criminal record looking for work, but I'll call it the kind of golden resume effect, right? We want candidates who have these sort of sterling college degrees with three prior work experience that match the current job. And if we hyper-focus on things like that, we miss out on some of the intangible, some of the sort of non-traditional factors that we'll talk about momentarily that might be actually better indicators of employability. So in terms of readiness for a job, what kind of training do job seekers, in your estimation, what have you seen uh, need the most? I mean, you know, we had chatted about this a little bit earlier, technology and communication, just those skills around those two things is a huge burden given the lack of tools and tech that is actually available to people within the prison system, for instance. So what about auxiliary support, resources, connections, associations, credentialing is a big thing too. Yeah. I mean, I think kind of twofold, like access to work, right? Which is where we spend a lot of our time, but then retention is, is equally important. And there's just a whole host of ways we can provide supports. I mentioned sort of the legal training, the legal empowerment skills to help navigate. So it becomes less a fearful process, but really tapping in and creating a network of community partners and nonprofits that are experts in this work with a whole host of experiences, trying to bring them together. A lot of this work is siloed. When I look at New York State, it can happen in different regions. Cornell, I think, can be a great hub to try and bring some of that work together and make sure that we're connecting individuals to all these uh, support systems because there's there are tons, but it's hard to find if it's not consolidated in one place. And it turns out that justice-impacted job seekers are resilient people almost, you know, via their experience within this prison system. What you're kind of hitting at is how do we quantify an individual's experience and path from the criminal legal system and how might that translate in the workplace? And I think ultimately the cover letter resume may not capture some of these things, you know, like resilience, creativity, things that really can indicate great employability. And for the workforce, particularly people impacted by the criminal legal system, lots of talent there. Lots of skills that are being overlooked or potentially just facing barriers, legal restrictions that don't even allow that kind of engagement from the HR side to a work with criminal record to meet and have a mutually beneficial arrangement. So enter the restorative record. We're using this term in contrast with the reductive criminal record, right? So what is, a couple questions, what is the restorative record? What problems are we fixing? What is it addressing? And how is one used? So I have to give credit to my team. So my background with legal training, knowledge of the criminal legal system, I partnered with a researcher, Matt Salah, and a tech entrepreneur, Jody Anderson, to try to really come up with a solution to this problem. I felt like we all as a team felt like we needed a paradigm shift. If the criminal record is going to continue to be used in this process, sort of a reductive, dehumanizing, maybe not the best uh, predictor of employability, we should come up with a tool that answers those questions, that fills that gap. And, and namely, from a lot of the trainings we do and the policy we work we do, it's like there's a real need to operationalize some of this and figure out how can we get a tool that solves for these problems. And what we came up with was a restorative record. A lot of that is based on research, things that we're talking about, some of the intangibles, but things like community engagement, 
Is someone involved in mentoring or mentorship? Even leisure and hobby activities indicate employability in some regard. Mm -hmm. Micro-credentials, it's not always coming from a four-year college degree. Sometimes it's coming from online courses. And particularly for someone who's just as impacted, this kind of information, training they may have even received in, in being incarcerated, isn't captured anywhere. So we wanted a place, a repository where that can all live and also be embedded in the hiring process to make it easier for HR professionals when they're faced with looking at this criminal record to have something else to counterbalance that, create a more holistic profile, but ultimately improve hiring. And that's what we've been working on. And I have to say that uh, we do this work out of the Center for Applied Research on Work at Cornell ILR. The support across Cornell has been staggering all the way from Dean Colvin, Dean Avgar, our HR deans across the schools, Donna Lynch Cunningham, Larry Mancuso, and then Lisa Yang, who's really been supporting this work to think, how can we take not just training and education and policy work research, traditional to, or sort of inherent to an educational institution, but let's actually build something. Let's be innovative and try to look at what's in the future and how can we solve for that and it's just been a, an exciting project. I don't know if we hit it quite as, as much as it deserves, but the benefit of a restorative record uh, for employers, right? So, some of the benefits, can you talk about some of those that it, it provides? Sure. I think in some ways, the most persuasive piece is, is a compliance tool. So for in New York, if, for example, there's a law called New York Correction Law, Article 23A. It's an eight-factor assessment that an employer has to conduct if they're going to deny someone a job. Many people aren't aware of this law. If you use a restorative record, if that's embedded in the hiring process, it is an, a really operationalized way to do this assessment. So compliance, I think it also helps with recruitment of new talent, right? If somebody's using a restorative record, we can connect them to an employer and vice versa. Also increasing yield, right? So if workers are being denied jobs because of a criminal record, we start to use this restorative record to give a more complete profile. It can help make a decision that might err towards, you know what? Based on a skills assessment, this worker is correct and we might increase yield. So those are a few of the benefits, but namely what we found is like recruitment and compliance being a really key piece of the utility. And expanding the talent pool. Right. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about the tool itself. At some point, you must have asked the question, could there be an app for this? Where are we with that? So right now we're in phase one of building. We're hoping to release in spring. The way we went about it is we need to pilot it, beta test it. Our first approach has been to use widely used systems like Salesforce and Workday, embedded in those, integrate it with the current hiring process to make it as easy as possible. On our side, our team works with candidates. Sometimes that can be triggered by right at the application phase, or sometimes that can be triggered by the criminal background check. We can come in, help create this record, embedded in the process. We think really, though, the future, Chris, with this tool is once the proof of concept is made, there's a software solution, right? For some of the complex challenges we're trying to confront, particularly around workers and access to work, given the underemployment and unemployment of people with criminal records, the solution is likely going to be technology-based. And that kind of software, again, lots of resources at Cornell for us to adapt it and move into that next phase. And I know we talked about this earlier too, the, you know, the future of work being a lot of automation, AI, algorithms, what we worry is some of these things might filter out candidates. And if we embed some of these new evidence-based predictors of job success that we're talking about that are embedded in their sort of record, if we can map onto some of these things, maybe that's a way to sort of future-proof this idea in the words of my colleague, Matt Salah, so that we can continue to 
not just look at the, the solution now and currently, but going forward, how can we be more inclusive in our hiring? And then maybe mo- most importantly is how can what we learn in working with a really difficult challenge of overcoming the background check, how can this apply to other non-traditional workers with disabilities, veterans, people who've been out of work for a while? Some of these same analyses can be used there. And I think that's the goal of collaboration across the university to try and figure out ways we can expand that impact. Hey, I've got a viewer question that made its way to me. Have you seen that banning the box, I want you to explain what that is in a minute, like in California has had a positive impact on hiring those with a criminal background. And do you see something like this being implemented nationally from where you sit? What's your perspective on banning the box? First, explain what it is. So maybe just to back up, ban the box is simply like there used to be on applications, still are in many cases. On the initial application, the candidate would have to check yes or no, have you been convicted of a felony? Everyone got kind of uh, savvy to that and realized that once that box is checked, that application is going straight to the trash. The individual is never going to get a shot. So I think the theory behind ban the box was, okay, we need to remove that question at that initial phase, more or less saying, don't walk into an interview saying, hi, my name is Tim McNutt. I have a criminal record, can I have a job? You're starting off kind of leading with the chin, as they would say in boxing. The idea behind ban the box is, we know we're going to have to find out some of the answers to a criminal conviction later in the process, but let's move it back so that we get to know the candidate, get to know their skills first, and then we can inquire about a criminal record. The challenge with ban the box is it's implemented even within a state in a different way, county by county. So some ban the box laws just eliminate the question on an application. Some allow an employer to ask about a criminal record during an interview, and some, the most New York City, for example, allow it after a conditional offer is made. So no one, you don't even learn about a criminal record until the employer says, we want to hire you for this job. However, it's conditioned on us doing a background check. At that point, a decision is made after reviewing uh, the background check. So to get to sort of more of the answer, that's sort of the context, that was the theory behind it. There's been some studies that say it's actually maybe been helpful, but maybe even harmful in some ways with the disparate impact on communities of color. Because what can happen is now that employers may not be able to know whether somebody has a criminal record early in the process, might assume if a candidate, for example, is an African-American male, may not even give them the chance of a job with some assumption that there might be involvement in the criminal legal system. So there's some studies that point to it's a little controversial, but all to say, I still think having a uniform ban the box law would be extremely helpful to make this kind of more transparent. And again, the later in the process somebody learns about a criminal record, the more helpful because you get to know that person on a more personal basis, but more importantly, get to know their skills unsort of jaded by that criminal record. Viewer Jim chimes in and asks, any thoughts on fine-tuning the restorative records for people with developmental disabilities coming out of prison into employment. So you had talked about addressing, helping multiple constituencies. Yeah. How about Jim's? I think that's a great suggestion. I think the tool as it exists can absolutely benefit a worker with a disability. A lot of the factors we're using not only are accessible to anyone, much more so than a college degree or a prior work experience, but applicable to to non-traditional workers. So that's exactly the kind of work we have in mind. Some of that work is in partnership with our colleague institute, Yangtan Institute at the Cornell ILR School, which specializes in this work. And we really lean on our other experts to help us in those spaces. So thinking about future work in the near term and long term at Cornell as it relates to the app or the the tool itself, I guess sure. we're calling it a tool. 
What's the roadmap? When is it going to be released and uh, what can we anticipate? So we're actively building it now. We're hoping for a release of version one in the spring, which includes a pilot of this, right? Actually implementing it into a hiring process, getting feedback from HR professionals, getting feedback from the applicants themselves. Simultaneously, we have a study, a longitudinal study, first kind of gauging employer attitudes about what the current hiring processes are how this tool might be able to supplement or improve the processes. So, you know, like any good research institution, we are, we got to test it, we got to study it. And then once we put it through its paces and it's going to be vetted quite thoroughly at Cornell, there's a lot of feedback we get from all of our stakeholders. Once that happens, then we're preparing to, I think the next steps have to be to, you know, potentially commercialize it, license it, and then make it available so that we can try and expand it to other industries outside of maybe even academia and to the private sector. So what about resources and tools that are available now? So I'm thinking about our audience, right? We have people on both the employment side and the job seeking side. If they go to the Cornell ILR criminal justice and employment initiative website, that's a good place to start. And ultimately they can connect with you in some way. That's right. So what we offer is training on these issues, not just based on the restorative record tool, but as we mentioned earlier, kind of the legal landscape that impacts hiring and employment of people with criminal records. So that's training that we provide. We also conduct research in this space, right, to come up with best practices, create policy briefs, inform our legislators. So training is really something that that we offer. Obviously, folks interested in possibly utilizing this tool or wanting to learn more about it can go to the website, find out how to contact us, and then we can try to set up a meeting where we can present this tool, get feedback, and then, of course, participation in our employer studies. We're always looking for folks to lend their expertise, right? This can only happen in a community and get feedback from experts in the field. We actively seek that because we want to refine this. We want it to make it work and really ultimately make a dent in this issue and really try to improve employment outcomes for people with records and help HR departments recruit new talent. Thanks for making yourself available for this. Tim McNutt, great to have you in the studio. Happy to be here. Thanks a lot. Yeah, you bet. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss new episodes as they are released wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn about Cornell's online courses and on-campus programs, check out the episode notes for more information. Whether you're a busy professional or an impassioned lifelong learner, there's sure to be content here that suits your goals and interests. Thank you for listening.